Welcome to the God of My Closet podcast, where we explore life and light of the love who embraces all of our skeletons. I'm your host, Ben DeLong, author of There's a God in My Closet. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, hey, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, today, I have the pleasure of um, Stephanie Lobdell joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for joining me, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to talk to you. I am um, pretty jealous of you, actually, because you get to live in my favorite state in the whole country. Are you serious? Really? <laughs> yep. I did not know this about you. That's, uh, that's where like all my family comes from. So there's like oh. a, t- a ton of nostalgia from Ohio. So Wow. See, I have literally no connection to Ohio, so yeah. I am putting down new roots, and that is that's challenging. I love the community yeah. verdict still out on the state. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, I love going back there. That's great. Um, so Stephanie, um, uh, you and I went to college together. Uh huh. Um, now, when I when I was at college, I was like super driven about like I'm just here to get my degree and and everything, so I didn't really like. <laughs> associate with a ton of people like I wish I would have but we did go to college together and uh yeah. I um and I I think I hung out a little bit more with uh your husband Tommy um we did uh, you guys we, were the same same year yeah same year and then um we volunteered at the same church for a little while so yes um yeah Tommy is hilarious I love that guy <laughs> I like him <laughs> um yeah and then we we um we kind of overlapped a little bit at seminary I think too yeah. Went to the yeah. same seminary. So yeah, we have um, some very similar experiences. Um, and then Stephanie um, supported my book. She endorsed my book and I was really grateful for that. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Yeah, no problem. So why don't you tell um, everybody a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Um, my name is Stephanie, obviously. And uh, I've been um, a Nazarene. I've been a part of the Nazarene church for about four generations. So it's a significant part of my life. Um, my dad was a Nazarene pastor and, um, I went into ministry as well. Um, felt kind of called to vocational Christian service when I was mm-hmm. 14, um, originally kind of interpreted that as a call to missions, but ultimately, um, ended up in a pastorate kind of a long story, how that kind of came about. But, um, my husband and I co-pastored, uh, for 10 and a half years, meaning we shared the office of lead pastor for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then, um, Last fall is when I started having conversations with Mount Vernon. They started, um, they asked for my resume, we began kind of conversations and it kind of a really extended journey of exploring this um, new possible um, expression of my call to ministry and mm. moved to Mount Vernon this summer. And my first day in the office was July 8th. So it has been like a whirlwind since I've arrived, yeah. um, but I've learned a lot. So it's been, it's been wild. It's been insane, but, um, but so many gifts along the way. Um, reflecting back, you know, as one does in December and January, kind of reflecting on the year and looking ahead to next, I look back and I think, man, if I would have known what an insane ride this would have been, I don't know if I would have had the courage, like if I would have had the heart, you know, the heart that I needed to do it. But thankfully I didn't know. And I just did it um, because the Lord asked that of me and empowered me along the way. Um, I'm married to Tommy. We got married um, 2006. We'll be uh, celebrating our 14th anniversary this summer, which is insane. So, Mm. um, seems wild, but we got, we <laughs> met when we were like kids. We were like 12 when we met at the same local church. My dad came there to pastor. Um, oh, we ultimately, nice. Yeah. But we ultimately went to the same university. Um, 
And so we had dated some in high school, but then dated more seriously, obviously in college and got married. And uh, now I have two, we have two kids. Josephine is seven and Jack is three and a half. Mm. So they're hilarious and naughty and sweet and all (laughs) the fun things. Little theologians, they say the funniest things. So, yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Well, yeah. um, You've talked, you talked a little bit in your book about some of your ministry transitions and um, yeah, it'd be really interesting to, to kind of hear you dive into that a little bit more if only because I've kind of experienced some of that um like you know I went to college for sure I was going to do one thing and then I did something else and then that wasn't it Uh, and then God led me to something else and and it's just it's just interesting how you're so sure you're supposed to go a direction (laughs) and then the way that God takes that in a different way yeah it's true um, yeah, when I was 14, I very much felt like the call was specifically to cross-cultural ministry um, and pursued that with like everything in me, you know, did every cross-cultural experience I could possibly do, um, you know, threw myself into language study, all those things. I went to Mid-America as a missions major, um, mm. but ultimately as I got there, they, I kind of realized like, what do you do with a missions major exactly? You need like, quote unquote, a marketable skill. Like, are you going to go there and be a pastor? Are you going to go there and teach? You're going to go there and do this or whatever. I'm like, oh, well, I don't even know. And ultimately after like multiple changes to my major, like looking back, it's just kind of absurd. I ended up with a double major of Christian education, which is like a, this kind of like Christian discipleship mm-hmm. and Spanish as a double major. And then I had missions as a minor. So just like how many things could you pack into one undergraduate degree? <laughs> I want to do that thing. Um, but yeah. ultimately did take the ordination track. So got all the classes that we needed for ordination. And then straight out of college, um, Tommy and I were already married at that point. We went and did a year of volunteer service over in Italy, um, mm. actually in Sicily, um, with um, a volunteer service at the time with our denomination. Um, and served over there for about about 10 months, actually. We had to come home a little bit early because my mother-in-law uh, fell ill with cancer. And Tommy was an only child. And um, mm. so we needed to be there to support her. So I came home um, and ultimately decided to um, to go to seminary during that time. Like I just really felt the need after leaving undergrad that, man, I am not underprepared, but like I it, the undergrad degree did what it could. But like at some point I realized like, man, I need more. I'm going to do damage. Yeah. Um, I had some like practical skills in terms of leadership and teaching and whatever. But in terms of um, my biblical studies and theology, I just felt pretty underread and um, just weak in some of those areas. So jumped into seminary, but kind of the expectation was um, I'm going to do this degree and then boom, I'm going to, we're going to hop back out there into the mission field as soon as we can just bam, mm-hmm. knock out an MDiv because that's possible. <laughs> um, so easy to just plow through that. Um, but ultimately during that time, uh, Tommy took pastorate. Um, he's going to be the senior pastor of this little kind of rural church. And I was just going to go to seminary and, um, go about, you know, be there for a season and, and move on. But during that time, the Lord kind of led us, um, into co-pastoring. I just felt this sense like, man, I need to be doing this too. I feel strange of you doing this without me. And partly that's just my personality, but also I felt like God was inviting me into this, um, this role to le- you need to learn what it is to shepherd, mm-hmm. um, to not just come in and think you have all the answers and you be the teacher that just like drops this preaching bomb and leaves, you know, what does it really actually mean to shepherd a people, um, yeah. not be the answer person or whatever. Um, and that really truly becoming a shepherd is, um, is a, is a discipline and it is a, an extended journey. So we were at that church for almost six years. Um, lots of wonderful things, lots of good people that loved us. And we truly did grow and the Lord did shape us in some really extraordinary ways during that time, but it was also a very difficult pastorate. Um, mm-hmm. And so had some real painful seasons as well. Um, and towards the end of that, we were kind of at this turning point of, okay, we either find a, a new place and a new way to serve or, um, or we might need to find a new 
new vocation. My husband in particular um, was just feeling, feeling the hurt from that so deeply, just fatigued, just so fatigued. Yeah. Um, and the Lord in just, just kind of Providence um, opened up an opportunity for us to co-pastor a church in Idaho. Um, and I had so little connection to Idaho other than a few, um, some family members, but not ones that I was terribly close to or anything. And, but ended up out there co-pastoring for four and a half years. And it was such a healing time um, and a real time of, of growth for us um, professionally, but also just spiritually, the Lord doing some significant work in us and through us. Um, but co-pastoring is, is a kind of a unique work in that you partner together, mm-hmm. um, which has such significant benefits. Um, but also we were realizing it was beginning to take a toll in some ways, both professionally and personally. It's hard to be married to your coworker in that way. Mm, yeah. Um, but also we just, we felt we were straining against one another and maybe um, could thrive and grow um, if we had a little bit more space. And so, but we didn't really know what to do with those feelings. Like we were very yeah. committed to that congregation. We're like, we're just going to continue on and to see. And that's kind of when the opportunity for Mount Vernon opened up and I didn't want to even explore it at all. Yeah. Um, primarily because I felt like it was beyond me. I didn't feel like I was, had that kind of capacity. I didn't feel like I was, you know, equipped. I mean, all the insecurities, the imposter syndrome, all those feelings of like, I am not up to the, to the bar. I'm not up to the bar. Yeah. And my husband was like, Stephanie, I think you need to reevaluate. Um, not that I'm some brilliant theologian or anything of that nature. He's like, but you love school. You love to learn like that environment. You thrive in that. Um, getting to kind of push on some things. Like, I think that you really do need to explore this. Um, and I think we should explore ministry in different tracks. And so that's kind of how we ended up. My husband kind of nudging me along the path yeah. um, and falling into this, this new rhythm. Nice. Um, so you, you talk about in your book, and one thing I really appreciate about um, in your book is that you, um, you don't, like pull any punches, I guess. And, and, and not in like a, not in a harsh way at all, but you, you are definitely honest about how your journey has been. Um, and so in, in ministry, you know, for you and your, um, situation that involves being a female and, you know, a typically male dominated ministry. Um, so, um, what did that look like, um, going Mm -hmm. through, going through those, um, and those different pastoral assignments that you had? Yeah. Um, our first pa- pastorate was uh, in a very rural, rural, rural context. And um, there was not a lot of um, models in terms of um, women in leadership and beyond just the rural context, like on the district that I was on, there was so few women in lead pastorates, a lot of women in staff pastorates, but very few in lead pastorates. Yeah. Um, and so that wasn't just something I had seen. And that's part of why I don't think I really had the imagination for myself to be in a senior pastorate role and a preaching role is because I had really seen it. Yeah. And it's hard to imagine yourself in a role that you've never really seen anyone that looks like you in that space. Um, mm. So that in of itself is kind of a miracle that the Lord invited me there. <laughs> and I was able to, um, to just respond to the spirit just slowly, but surely um, into the pulpit. Yeah. So um, that was very, that was very challenging um, in a lot of ways, but just not necessarily just because of the context, but just overall the, um, the environment of, um, of, our particular tribe of evangelicalism, but also Nazarenes, we've always affirmed women in ministry, but haven't always practiced it very well. Um, And so there just hadn't been a lot of space for that. And so um, that was, that was very challenging. There were times when um, for years, even we were there for six years and for years into our pastorate, like people would call me the pastor's wife. And Mm. partly that just was the language they were used to. Um, and there were sometimes I really chafed against that off most of the time, frankly. Um, But, but, 
oftentimes it wasn't necessarily out of malice. It was just out of just, that's what they were used to and whatever else. And it took so long. It felt like for me to earn what my husband had been freely given, Mm -hmm. um, the title and some of the pastoral authority. And that's not like I was running around trying to like be in like, like whip people around with my shepherding staff with pastoral authority. It's not like that. It's the sense of, um, feeling the need to prove myself. And part of that's my own internal, my own internal dialogue, right? Of feeling the need to prove myself because there's so few women, and man, if I bomb it, it's going to look bad for all of us. And so that internal pressure, but also just Mm. this sense of needing to demonstrate that I was up to par. Um, And that put put me in a place of kind of significant unhealth, um, both spiritually and otherwise. And I had to really um, work through that of acknowledging that I can be both called to ministry, faithful in that ministry, and also free from this burden of needing to, to prove myself worthy, um, that somehow the call and the affirmation of the church, even if it's not always uh, backed up as well as it could be, um, but the ordination of my church and the call of God um, and the affirmation of the people that know and love me, um, that's where I need to rest, not in this need to perpetually you know, prove myself over and again. Yeah. Um, because that put me in just an unhealthy space and it didn't, it really hindered my ability to shepherd well because I was feeling, you know, defensive and protective. Um, mm-hmm. So having to kind of work through that was a process of years. And I think we'll probably continue in many ways as I continue to grow. Yeah. Yeah. I remember there, there was one um, thing you mentioned in your book that like <laughs> it hit me and I had to stop and mention it to, to my wife. Cause like, I, I know, I know from listening to you and others that pastoring as a female has different challenges. Um, but then then to read, um, I think you were talking about there was a church that your dad was pastoring at where he had a bathroom <gasps> in his study yes. and, and all it had was a urinal in it. Yes. Oh, my word. Isn't that wild? That's crazy. I know whatever that was like. No way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think I think there's a lot of dynamics there. I don't think they built the church. I think there was a church they maybe bought and it became a Nazarene church and whatever else. But like for me, it just made no sense. For, yeah. First of all, if you're having a private bathroom, but it's just a, you're like, what? What's going on there? But then how strange to me and the saddest thing of all was that I didn't recognize the message of that bathroom mm. for years. Yeah, It was literally years before I was able to say, oh, I am not welcome here. Yeah. And, and my imagination had been so malformed that yeah. I didn't even recognize the disparity for so long. Mm. And now looking back, I'm like, that's insane. Uh, but at the time, <laughs> it wasn't even that, wasn't even that challenging. It was yeah. more about like the practice of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm with your, um, with your dad being a pastor. I, I know for me, I had a lot of challenges that came out from being a pastor's kid. Um, was, yeah. was that a difficult thing for you or how did that work? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, I think overall, I would probably say that being a pastor's kid for me was really a gift. Um, We were in some loving churches that, you know, that I think loved me and shaped me in really positive ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also my parents were very, very explicit about saying um, we do, we live life in this way, not because we are, not because we are pastors, but because we are Christians and because Mm -hmm. we are the nurses, like this is who we are as a family. And so they very much were not, um, there was not a dichotomy between our public church life and our home family life. There was a, mm. a real, very strong consistency between who we were at church and who we were at home. You know, obviously tiffs and fights and, you know, shenanigans, but I mean, yeah. they were all out on the table. And so I felt 
for me, I didn't feel like I had to change in between those spaces. Uh, and I think that was a real gift. They lived yeah. with integrity in that way. Um, and also, um, I saw my dad, he did a very good job. They both did a very good job of, of, of enduring difficult seasons. Like I didn't know, and also they protected me from them. So like we went through a very, very challenging season at one of the churches they were at. I knew that hard things were happening, but I did not know the extent of them. Mm -hmm. um, had I known what was going on, I would have been crippled with anxiety and worry and so mm. many things. And I only had to know a little bit of it because they very much protected us and said like, they didn't talk about it in front of us. So there was this sense of, oh, there's some disruption, but like we're secure. I never felt insecure. Like, oh my gosh, we're going to lose our kicked out. Like I never felt those things. Mm. Um, but now looking back as an adult and as adult in ministry, I look back and I see how faithful they were in the face of slander, in the face of difficult times and realize how much their faithfulness I think has shaped me. And so in the midst of the difficult seasons we've been in ministry, we've never been like, well, I guess we're out of here. You know, we yeah. stuck it out through some really hard things, I think, because that had been modeled for us. Um, yeah. And we just felt like the Lord was faithful and provided for them. And he's going to do the same for us now. And I think that shaped us in some really healthy ways as, as a couple, because my dad was actually my husband's pastor for all of his growing up, his teenage years. Mm, so, yeah. um, so we kind of shared a pastor in a way, which is interesting. Um, but being a pastor's kid for me, I had a very, very healthy experience that I think has undergirded and strengthened my own ministry. Mm. Yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah. Um, so your book is um, it's called Signs of Life. And I, I can't remember exact, the exact wording of the subtitle. Can you say that? Yeah, it is. Um, Signs of Life is Resurrecting Hope Out of Ordinary Losses. Mm. Yeah, and you really, um, and and I think you really are faithful throughout the whole book of of to that subtitle of of just showing how the resurrection really does have um, practicality to yeah. whatever we're going through. Um, can you talk about what um, I know you talk about in your book, like how you thought of the resurrection when you were younger or as a kid, yeah. and then and then how that how that started to mature. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, I really understand. I think this is probably not atypical. Um, <clears throat> I really understood the resurrection, uh, the primary purpose of the resurrection um, as God, very much a penal substitution theory exclusively as, okay, so God killed Jesus because I should have been killed. Mm -hmm. um, and then he raised him from the dead to prove he was really God. Um, and then God took him up into heaven and one day we'll get to go to heaven too. And so the resurrection was this, like, I didn't even really fully understand. Like, I'm even embarrassed to say this. I don't think I really even fully understood about resurrection of the body. Yeah. And so like the concept later as in seminary, I'm thinking like actual, well, then where is he? Like if there's an actual <laughs> body, you know what I mean? Like there's yeah. legitimate questions I have here. So like, I understood the resurrection very much in this ethereal, spiritual, disconnected from my practical life. Like the resurrection was really about getting my sins forgiven and preparing the way for me to go to heaven someday when I die. Mm. But the sense of, of God's resurrection power, like the spirit's power breaking into creation to sever, you know, the chains of sin and death that, and that Jesus is the first fruits of that, mm. that, that what God has done in the micro with Jesus, he will do on the macro. He will do for all of creation. And that includes me. And that, that new creation life is 
is bursting forth even in the most minuscule ways, even now, like not in its fullness until the consummation, until Christ returns and sets all things right. But like the resurrection power is at work and new creation life is bursting forth among us as we say yes and we cooperate and we get in the stream of what God is doing uh, to redeem and restore creation. And so it is, first of all, it's far larger than just me getting my sins wiped clean, right? This is, right. This is God redeeming the universe, um, but also far more personal, if that can make sense at all, that that the resurrection actually matters right now. Like God mm. is is wanting to heal and restore and make all things new starting now, not yeah. just someday. And so I give this kind of image in the in the in the book about um, I've kind of understood in the past like the resurrection to be like here read this really awesome menu of what dinner you're gonna have someday while you're starving to death right now. Mm. This image of of God has prepared this wonderful feast, but not yet. Right. Yeah. Um, and so what does it look like to, to understand that God is actually at work among us? What does it look like to cultivate to practice resurrection vision um, to see God doing that restorative uh, resurrecting work even now? Yeah. And it's not some overrealized eschatology. It's not some like everything's great and God is healing all the things right now. Can't you see it? Like that's just ignorance. That's blind. That's ignoring all the hurt and the significant and systemic brokenness around us. Mm, but to yeah. also say that God is not doing restorative and healing work, that is also um, an intentional persistent blindness yeah. um, to the new creation life that is, is breaking into relationships and into broken hearts and into systems and into, you know, dysfunction and hurt. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, I mean, I I totally share a lot of that, those perceptions about the resurrection when I was younger. And it was just like, you know, hey, this happened and you're just supposed to believe it and that's it. <laughs> and yeah. someday, someday you'll get the benefits. Yeah, and it was very much a assent to this idea. Assent yeah. to this, like agree in your mind that this thing happened. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of, in a lot of ways, the extent of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think um, for me, a lot of my spiritual journey and healing has come from, from really um, realizing the power that it holds for right now, where I'm at right now um, for the resurrection, but also for the death of Christ. And, yeah. and that there's um, the way I, I put it is that Jesus didn't die on the cross to bear our sins for us. He died on the cross to show us how to bear them properly. Mm. And, and that, we we the only way we get to participate in the resurrection the only way we experience the, that new life is to experience that death as well um and you talk so so well about that in your book about different things that you had to die to um yeah. to experience that new life what um what would you say to someone about just like because I, I feel like sometimes this is hard to articulate of like how how do you lean into that death? Like how do you lean into that experience to to get get to the other side? How, how would you oh. articulate that? Yeah. Um, so Walter Brueggemann's language around the Psalms has really been helpful for me here. Um, he talks a lot about orientation, disorientation, and then reorientation in some of his work around the Psalms. And one of the the challenges, or maybe one of the dangers of orientation, this everything's great and everything's wonderful and um, whatever we are doing now, like it has to be better next year and it will be better. And we're so positive. And um, some of the, and that's really a very, um, frankly, a pretty American perspective as well. Like we're always yeah. moving upward, you know, um, yeah. the underdog will always succeed. Um, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps type thing. And none of this negativity. 
um, that sometimes to the point where we want to subdue and silence any alternative um, experiences or mm. um, divergent experiences or hurt or shame or loss or um, even narratives that, you know, coexist alongside these positive narratives, but really harmful ones. Like we can be also these amazing pioneers into the wilderness while also doing significant damage to indigenous populations. Like those two stories yeah. coexist, right? So for me, it's this idea that what if moving past, always having to have this orientation, everything is great, everything is working. What if acknowledging this disorientation, like something hurts, something is broken, something is not right. What if that is actually not a failure necessarily in and of itself? Mm. What if that is a part of the human experience, part of either the result of my own sin, the result of someone's sins against me, or the result of brokenness in creation that even affects my very body, right? Mm. So like my diagnosis of depression, that was not a personal failure on my part. That was right. my body and my brain working in a certain way um, that is in a lot of ways reflective of the fallenness of creation down to the cellular level. And so to acknowledge, to stop pretending like everything's okay, but to say that there's actually something wrong here and giving that permission, this false understanding of what life should be and what life is. Like for me, that was this image of the future that I had constructed, this, these expectations that I had. Um, those without my permission, you know, gave up the ghost. Like they just died right before my very eyes. Like the future mm. that I thought I was going to have was going to shift whether I liked it or not. Yeah. And when I was finally able to acknowledge that death for what it was, um, not this personal failure, but um, just a symptom in a lot of ways of sin and death at, you know, wreaking havoc in creation. Um, and that God was not standing apart from me in disgust or frustration mm -hmm. or annoyance, but was actually embracing me in that space. Yeah. Was actually present with me in that space and was actually inviting me forward to a good future, even though it was um, cloudy, misty, didn't know what's coming future. But this, the sense of that I was being kind of enveloped into this, this triune love of God that has accepted me um, not after I've gotten myself together, but as I am, and binding mm. me back together with the triune, you know, these cords of divine love, yeah. um, stitching me back together um, and inviting me to a good future. And so it's this, this ability to, or this divine gift really of acknowledging and just saying, hey, I love Jesus so much, but I am no longer willing to lie about what hurts. Yeah. There is some freedom there yeah. um, because not only do we get to acknowledge this actually hurts and sooner or longer lying to ourselves and others, but it also finally God can say, okay, we've acknowledged the wound. Now let's, let's shift our gaze towards healing. Mm. What can God do in me and through me once I've been willing to acknowledge instead of trying to prop up something that is lifeless, right? What yeah. could God resurrect and what new work could he do in me when I'm willing to, to sit in that uncomfortable space of disorientation and loss? Mm. Yeah, that's really good. Um, you, you talk, you talk some about in your book, um, that a, a big hurdle for you in that was just your your personality of really wanting to succeed um, and to you know to, to look successful to others as well. And and I know you've I know you've talked about in some of the groups we're in that that you're an Enneagram three and that, and that's a part of that. Um, I I'm I'm a four in the Enneagram, but I have a really strong three wing as well. Um, and so okay, I, I get um, easily caught up in that as well. Um, so what are some steps that have been helpful for you to kind of, um, release that a little bit, release that, that feeling that you need to be successful 
or look successful to others. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a really, that's been a painful journey. Not going to lie. Um, it has involved some people speaking some really hard truth to me. Hmm. Um, people coming into my life, people that I loved and that loved me saying some hard things saying, Hey, listen, I love you, but also you are so desperately trying to prove yourself and you're causing damage. Hmm. Um, Hey, I love you, but we're not willing to be your trophy. Um, Hey, I love you, but you need, you actually need to take a break. Um, like you need to sit down and stop doing what you're doing and allow us to love you for who you are and not what you're doing and stop preaching for a season. I mean, things that brutal, like I, maybe I'm just like extra dense or stubborn, but like reading a bunch of books about things didn't do the trick for me. Like, yeah, it helped highlight some of the patterns and highlight some of the wounds and particularly some of the Enneagram work has really been a means of sanctification for me. And it's been such a gift, Mm -hmm. but it really wasn't until real flesh and blood people in my life had to call some of those patterns out um, and really show me the ways they were doing damage both to me and to others um, that I was finally able to be still. And during this one particular season where I felt like the Lord had in a way had sidelined me in some ways for my own discipline, but also just for my protection and for my own healing, really. Um, It was so intriguing how during that brief period of time, God was constantly, continually through every means I could imagine affirming his love for me, his Mm. unconditional love for me, that you are the beloved, you are the beloved. And that, that thread just wove through everything I was reading, everything I was singing, everything, everything I was doing. I just kept being confronted by that. And so even now when I find myself leaning into an anxious space or feeling um, like how am I being perceived and this, that, and the other, and jump falling into those, those wounds that also result in sinful patterns that are defensive and self-protective and prideful and, but also fragile. When I feel myself being kind of pulled into that stream again, what grounds me and was saying is that reminder that you are loved, even if you fail, Mm -hmm. you are loved, even if you are not the best, you are loved, even when you are misunderstood or misinterpreted, Mm -hmm. Um, you are safe. Um, and you are chosen and you are cared for and God actually, uh, likes me, doesn't mm-hmm. just love me because he's God and he has to, but, yeah. um, actually wants to sit and be present with me. Um, understanding God in that way, um, versus just constantly calling me forward to be better and all those things, mm-hmm. being able to rest in, on that love is, I know will be a lifelong discipline for me but I yeah. certainly am recognizing the pattern faster and returning to that safe place more quickly than I did in the past. Mm. Yeah. I think we're all pretty, pretty stubborn when it comes to um, our personalities and our, and our defense mechanisms. It, it takes a lot to, to let go of those things. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and the, yeah, I, I know for me, it, like you said, um, it, t- it definitely took that, that flesh and blood um, person speaking um, life into it and, um, I, I was talking to a mentor a couple months ago, um, and, um, you know, Enneagram fours, they, they love to wallow in their suffering and, and in melancholy. And <laughs> they, they think, you know, they, they find themselves to be deep because of that. And, and so I was, you know, I was talking to him about, I, I was like, I think I really need to sit with this and, and work through this. And, and for, another personality that might've been the answer, but he was like, no, you, you just want to wallow. <laughs> Actually going to call that out on you. Yeah. yeah. No, I've been there. I have been there. 
Yeah. You're like, I hate you, but also I love you because <laughs> I needed to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you also talk and you've mentioned earlier about your um, journey with depression. And um, I, I know that was, um, I know that was a, a really difficult thing to accept for you. And, and, um, and I, for me, um, I've worked with depression as well. And, and the knowing that I had depression wasn't, it wasn't the, the difficult thing. It, it was when I had to accept that I had to take medication for it. And, oh yeah. Oh and yeah. There, yeah. And there was just this intense shame of like, well, because I, I had worked, there was like, um, a, almost a 10 year gap between when I was first diagnosed with depression and then when I started taking oh, okay. medication and, and, um, and I, I started seeing a therapist and after about six months, he was like, yeah, I think you have some biochemical things. And there was just this huge shame of like, but you know, I've been praying and I've been doing the meditation and all this stuff. And, you know, I must, you know, mm. I must just not be doing it right. Or I must just not be doing yeah. it good enough. And, um, yeah. can, um, can you talk about kind of your struggle with that too, that you mentioned in your book? Yeah, I definitely took the route of, I can fix this. Um, mm. I, you know, did everything in my own power to try to, you know, change my life pattern to change my eating and change this and change that. And that's going to fix all these things. But the funny thing is, is I've have actually biochemical depression in my family, um, like in my bloodstream, like it's a part yeah. of my DNA. Right. Yeah. Um, and yet when I was, when I went to the doctor finally, and she's like, uh, this is what I'm seeing. It, I act, it was like some big shock to me, which is just so, so silly. Yeah. Um, but for me, it really very much felt like a failure. Like I should have been able to work out of this. Like I should have been able to to reorient my life enough to avoid this, I should have been able to do, you know, X number of things. Right. Yeah. And I was not able to do that. And so for me, it very much felt like a failure, um, of both my work ethic, but also mm. a like a spiritual failure. Like if you really love Jesus, yeah. you would be content. If you really love Jesus, you would be at peace. If you really love Jesus, then you wouldn't feel sad. Um, and nobody had really explicitly said that. I think that was just kind of the water in which I was swimming a lot yeah. of just generalized evangelicalism. Um, my, parents most certainly did not perpetuate that. They uh, very much asserted that like, this is an illness because they had walked that with other family members. And so they mm. very much were encouraging and supportive of me when I was put on medication. Um, but at the place I was at at the time, even affirmation from my mother, my very own mother uh, could not, <laughs> could not kind of untangle me from those cords of shame. Like it was mm. a very long journey for me to be able to acknowledge I'm taking this and I'm so loved and lovable I'm taking yeah. this and it doesn't mean I am broken and worthless. Um, and it was only until one of my professors really had said, had kind of re-narrated that for me to say, what if this medicine, he's like, I take my medicine every day and say to myself, like today, this is God's means of grace for me. Mm. And that for me was a complete reorientation, this sense of um, what if God's grace comes, not just in these traditional routes of scripture and prayer and church, or whatever, but through the gifts of even the gifts of grace of medicine or of this or of that, like not these, these ways that God comes to us and ministers to us and meets our needs. Um, I had, my imagination was not capable of kind of encompassing that, like really burst open a lot of boxes that I had in my head yeah. and broadened how um, I understood how God comes to us and ministers to us and our point of need. But man, it's been a, it's been a road. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny um, that you mentioned that. Cause yeah, the, the actually going, but going back all the way back to my grandparents, 
the majority of my family has struggled with depression and yet I still thought it was surprising. <laughs> <laughs> right? I know. Like, but I'm exempt because I'm special. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yes. At least that, that me anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mentioned this earlier that um, in your book, you do a really great job of of speaking the truth about your journey, but also about um, stuff that you went through um, with, uh, you know, the struggle of being a female in ministry and the the um, challenges and in, in, in church assignments when you have um, yeah. people who, you know, don't know what they're doing, but they're still being, you know, they're still sabotaging or trying to get their agenda and, and, it, and, it, and it hurts. And you, yeah. um, you're really honest about that. And I, um, I wonder if you could talk about um, just what, what the journey of getting to that point has been like of, of um, just being able to speak truth um, and what challenges that you found in that. Um, I don't, I'm not sure when the shift happened when I, began to just be more honest. Um, I definitely think it had a lot to do with my mental health diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, and as the Lord, you know, I didn't necessarily get up in the pulpit every week and be like, Hey, I got depression and like wave it around like some flag. But, um, when the opportunities came for me to speak around it in appropriate ways, not in some like inappropriate self-disclosure, but in healthy self-disclosure, mm -hmm. um, I have found that what I thought would disqualify me for ministry actually, um, opened up far more doors for uh, opportunities for connecting with people um, mm. in ministry than I ever thought possible. Yeah. Um, they felt I was approachable, that I was human, that I could that I could empathize, um, that maybe that God, there was space for them too at, th at God's table. If, you know, someone like me, you know, some broken person like me was there too, you know, and like in a lot of ways, <laughs> yeah. my brokenness um, became the gateway for many uh, people in a way that I did not anticipate. Yeah. And so at one point I did receive a little bit of pushback from some leadership saying not local leadership, but beyond the local church saying, mm. you know, I've had some pushback. You're an angry pastor. Cause I'd started writing a little bit about some of my mental health experience mm. and um, kind of walked me through why that was inappropriate. And, but the funny thing that they didn't know, and then I eventually did communicate, but I said, you know, since I published this particular piece, it was actually a blog post um, about my own mental health that I'd written while I was in a dark period mm -hmm. um, about me calling out to Christ to come, to come and bring a flashlight because it's so dark, that kind of thing. And yeah. um, several, several women reached out to me, women in particular that said, you know, since following your journey, I've started the course of study to pursue, you know, pastoral ministry. Mm -hmm. I honestly thought I was disqualified because of my gender, because of my mental health, because of this, oh, wow. that, and the other that I was not worthy or I was not able. And here I am now I'm doing this thing. And so this leader asked me, they said, now, would you take it back? Like what you wrote Oh wow. would you, now, would you take that back? And what, cause I posted a picture with it too. It was just a picture of me during that time where I looked very, very physically ill. And cause I included that not to be dramatic, but to say some people think dramatic, like depression is this romantic experience that allows you to write insightful blog posts. It's not, it's hurt. It's an illness. It hurts. This, you know, yeah. Let me take all of those romantic images out of your mind, right? Yeah. He's like, would you take it back? Would you take back that picture? Da, 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 da. And I said, um, no, I would post it again a thousand times. And I don't <laughs> think that endeared me to that person's heart. But at that point, I was like, I'm done. I am yeah. done. Um, not to be inappropriate, not to be intentionally like deconstructionist to the point where I'm going to tear everything down and not build anything back up, but to say, things hurt. Yeah. Things hurt. And things are broken and I'm not going to pretend like they're not. 
and I'm not going to hide in the back room because that's not doing anybody any favors. Yeah. And so obviously I need to be careful and use discernment about who I turn to for my support. I need to have my support systems in place. Like the pulpit is not the place to work out your mental health, but at the same time, um, having a pastor or, you know, a Christian leader who is going to pretend like everything's fine when their life is literally falling apart is the recipe for destruction for that pastor. Mm. And it's going to do nothing but sow seeds of, um, ah, I don't even know of unhealth amongst the congregation. Yeah. So a thousand times over, I will choose the route of disruptive honesty. As my husband says about me, he's like, you are disruptively <laughs> honest and that makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. And that was probably one of the greatest compliments I think he's, he's probably ever given me. Mm. Well, um, yeah, thanks so much for, for being on here and talking about your book. I, I've told you that I really, um, I mean, your book has a lot of levels to it. It's, you know, it really does give us that, um, that insight of how the pattern of death and resurrection is applicable to each day of our lives. Um, yeah. it, it also, um, as we talked about, you, you are very open about your, your struggles um, and the challenges that you've faced, but I, but also, as I told you, you're just, you're a very gifted writer and the, and the way that you have of, of painting a picture, um, you know, your, your book was one of the books that I've read where I'm just like, damn, I wish I could do that. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and, uh, well, that's very generous. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, um, um, and yeah, you just, um, yeah, I, I really appreciated your writing. So I, I think people were really, um, enjoy your book. I think they'll um, find it really hits home for them. It'll be a, a really big gift to them. Um, so I, I encourage you. everyone to check your book out. Um, uh, how how um, could people interact with you and 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 find your work? Yeah. Well, I have a website um, that has most of my stuff on there. Um, I do have a blog, um, but you can also sign up for a, a newsletter that I send out um, some mini essays. And then I do like, I call them bite-sized book reviews, just like, hey, some books to check out and a couple sentences about why they matter as opposed to like, here, read three pages because I don't got time for that, yeah. um, right? <laughs> to read or write that. Um, so I do mini essays on that, um, but that also has links to where you can buy my book um, and see some of my other publications that I've written on various outlets and stuff like that. So it's just stephanielobdell.com. Okay, great. Well, thanks again for, for being with us and uh, have a good yeah, one. Yeah, thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Ben.